Hi everyone, welcome back to this podcast on the Peloponnesian War. I'm so sorry it's taken a while to put this out, but life outside of YouTube and all things related has been a bit hectic of late. But I promise that I will do my best to put future chapters out more often. So without further ado, let's start with part three. Pericles, during much of his life, had been a giant in Athenian and Greek politics. By no means was he perfect, and over the course of his life, he had had many setbacks, political rivals, and critics. However, the great trust that the Athenian people placed in him, as well as his vision for their city, allowed him to overall be a unifying force in Athenian politics. After his death, there was no one who could immediately fill the massive void that he had left behind. But war does not simply stop due to the death of one man, no matter how great. Pericles's death had caused fear in Athens and amongst many members of the Delian League, who wondered not just whether or not the city's new leadership would be as committed to their protection, but also perhaps if staying in the alliance was now even in their own interests, if not in outright liability. For many of them, the question became, why antagonize Sparta and Corinth? Most of the smaller states of the alliance had no specific quarrel with either of them. They had inherited Athens's rivalry with the Peloponnesians, not chosen it. As the actions of the Athenians became increasingly more belligerent, and their responses to provocations even more reckless, it was the smaller Delian League members who seemed to suffer the most. However, for those city-states that had some power and wealth, and especially ships, the situation was possibly different. Given the right circumstances, such resources could be used to break away from Athens's orbit, and Pericles's death had perhaps presented them with such an opportunity. Towards the eastern edge of the Greek-speaking world, off the coast of Asia Minor, was the island of Lesbos, whose principal city was Mytilene. Mytilene had a special position within the Delian League, for not only had it been a founding member of the alliance, as well as one of its largest financial backers, but it also had its own fleet of ships, with a command structure independent of the Athenian navy. Such autonomy was extremely rare amongst Delian League members. In 428 BC, Mytilene and most of the other cities on the island of Lesbos, the exception being Methemna, revolted against Athens. It was a precarious situation, to say the least. On the one hand, the Peloponnesians were still able to ravage the countryside of Attica and keep most Athenians hiding behind their city's long walls. On the other, the loss of Mytilene, let alone its possible defection to the Peloponnesian side, would greatly weaken Athenian influence in Ionia, one of its traditional strongholds within the Greek world. Not only would the Athenians lose ships, but access to the waters and supply routes of the Aegean up to the Black Sea would be more difficult to control. Though the Spartan-led alliance had always maintained the upper hand on land, 
it was the Athenians' command of the seas that in many ways still gave them an overall advantage. All of that now had been called into question. A worst-case scenario was indeed now unraveling itself, for along with the revolt on Lesbos, the Spartans in 427 BC invaded Attica yet again in an effort to divert Athenian and Delian League resources from retaking the island. The wise and brilliant Spartan general Archidamus was notably absent from the force, which most historians have interpreted to mean that he was near the end of his life and was no longer in physical condition to lead the army. Instead, command was given to Cleomenes, who was the brother of the exiled king, Pleistoanax. To further support the rebellion, the Spartans sent one of their commanders, Selethus, to help organize the resistance and prepare Mytilene for the eventual Athenian attack. He was to be followed by a fleet of 42 ships under the command of the Spartan admiral, Alcides. The Athenians, though, were quicker, and arrived at Mytilene to rapidly put down the revolt. Sending about 100 ships, the Athenians blockaded the harbors of Lesbos, with the exception of the city of Methemna, which remained loyal to them throughout the campaign. Knowing that eventually the Athenians would send hoplites to their shores, Mytilene's oligarchic regime distributed weapons to the population and fortified their city's defenses. This plan, though, started to backfire once the citizens began to demand that more grain be distributed to the now-starving population. When the city's leaders didn't comply, the people themselves surrendered Mytilene to the Athenians and their commander, Pachis, who some call Pachis. The revolt's purported leaders, about 1,000 of them, were rounded up and sent back to Athens for trial. When Alcides heard of what had transpired on Lesbos, he abandoned the mission, and, despite pleas from some of his best advisors, ultimately sailed back to the Peloponnese, though not before causing some trouble in Ionia. As for the revolt's leaders in Mytilene, they fled to the city's holy sanctuaries for protection once the Athenian army arrived. Soon, the other cities on Lesbos that had revolted surrendered without a fight. The campaign to retake Mytilene had overall been a success, but it caused a great debate amongst the Athenian assembly as to what the punishment should be for the city, its leaders, and even common residents. Anger and emotion ruled over reason. The Athenians, and rightfully so, had been shocked that an up-until-then important and reliable ally such as Mytilene should revolt and join the ranks of their most hated enemies. For his part, the Spartan commander Salathus was put to death without a trial. But he would never have set foot on Lesbos and helped them to rebel had the people, or at least the leaders of Mytilene, not given him protection in the first place. Into the debate came the hawkish and rather brutish politician Cleon, son of Cleonetus. In many ways, Cleon was the opposite of the more measured and practical Pericles. Considered by many scholars to have been a right-wing, warmongering extremist, Cleon came from a rather modest family 
who had only just recently made its fortunes by operating a successful tannery for animal hides. Hardly of the noble pedigree of Pericles, or the other members from the Athenian elite, Cleon's, or rather, his family's, recent accumulation of wealth, along with his big mouth, gave him significant influence amongst many segments of Athens's population that had grown tired of what they considered to have been Athenian pacifism and desired a more direct, aggressive approach towards their Peloponnesian rivals. Cleon's punishment for Mytilene was simple. Kill all of the city's adult males and sell the women and children into slavery. As extreme as this sounded, many supported him because they felt that had the Mytilenean revolt actually been successful, it would have inspired other Delian League members, especially in Ionia, to also abandon Athens. Given the current war with the Peloponnesian League, this was unacceptable and tantamount to treason, even in the view of the most dovish of Athenians. To make sure that such a rebellion would not even be contemplated in the future by other Athenian allies, Cleon and his faction argued that the penalty for such actions must be severe, with no difference in the sentence between politicians and the common people. At the other end of the spectrum, leading a more moderate faction, was Diodotus, son of Eucrates. As angry as he and members of his faction were, Diodotus advocated a milder punishment, focusing primarily on the leaders of the rebellion. He astutely made the point that the rebellion had more or less dissolved the moment it became clear to the rebels that the Athenians had the ships and manpower to suppress it. He reasoned that most of them capitulated because they knew they'd be better off if they surrendered. However, if they knew that the Athenians were merciless and would kill and enslave them regardless, then they would have fought to the death, which would have resulted in many more casualties. In future, should another Delian League member revolt, they would also fight to the last man, knowing that surrender would mean death, dishonor, and the likely destruction of their city. If this were to become Athens's new policy, then it could not possibly expect to be a beacon of hope for the Greek-speaking world, as Pericles had intended. Instead, the Athenians would be no different than all of the cruel despots that they, as a democracy, supposedly despised. In the end, the Athenian assembly sided with Cleon, and voted to execute all of the adult men in Mytilene and enslave the women and children. A ship was sent back to Mytilene almost immediately after the verdict to inform Pachys of the gruesome sentence that he'd been ordered to carry out. However, a day later and after passions had cooled a bit, many in the Athenian assembly recognized that they may have acted more out of rage than good sense. The generals, many of whom had been close allies and personal friends of Pericles, were particularly disturbed at having to enforce such a harsh and rapidly concluded sentence. Enter, once again, Diodotus, who according to Thucydides, argued that the common people, or demos, in all cities is well disposed to you and either does not rebel along with the oligarchs, or, if it is compelled, 
is immediately hostile to those who made the revolution, so that you go to war having the majority of the opposing city as an ally. After all speeches had been given from the various parties and their representatives, the assembly took another vote. The result was that the original Mytilian decree was rescinded. While mass slaughter and enslavement of the Mytilian population had been avoided, this didn't mean that there wasn't any bloodshed. The nearly 1,000 men whom Pakis had deemed to have been the most guilty perpetrators of the rebellion were all executed without trial. These men had constituted approximately one-tenth of Mytilene's and Lesbos' entire adult male population. While again excessive, especially to be condemned to death without any sort of trial, such an action may have been agreed to by those who followed Diodotus in order to sway some of the assembly's more hawkish members from demanding blood from the entire Mytilenean population. It was essentially the lesser of two evils. Massive slaughter may have been avoided on paper, but the new decree had to be put into the hands of Pakis to have been of any use. Another ship was dispatched in hot pursuit of the first one, in order to inform Pakis of the assembly's latest verdict. Luckily, it arrived at Mirellini just as Pakis was reading the original brutal decree. The men, women, and children of Mirellini were saved. But Mytilene's fleet was confiscated, and the territory under its jurisdiction greatly reduced. Despite such a pivotal victory that had allowed Athens to both save face, as well as its empire in the Aegean, the year 427 BC also had its share of setbacks. The greatest of these was the final capitulation of longtime ally Plataea. Recall that Plataea had been resisting a Spartan siege since 429 BC, and by the summer of 427 BC had all but run out of food and supplies. Those who remained had little choice but to surrender and hope that the Spartans and their Theban allies would show some mercy. The Plataeans agreed to surrender on the condition that they would be judged fairly by the Spartan magistrates. This was a mistake. The Spartans held what can only be described as a sham trial, the result of which was the execution of at least 200 Plataeans and 25 Athenians who had stayed to help defend the city. The remaining women were sold into slavery. So much for the oath of Plataea that the Spartans had so ceremoniously made barely over half a century before, during the Persian Wars they had essentially contributed to the destruction of the city they had once sworn to protect. According to Thucydides, Sparta's heavy-handed approach towards Plataea was to appease the Thebans. He tells us, The adverse attitude of the Spartans in the whole Plataean affair was mainly adopted to please the Thebans, who were thought to be useful in the war at that moment raging. Such was the end of Plataea, in the 93rd year after she became the ally of Athens. The Thebans razed the city to the ground and allotted its lands to its citizens for 10-year leases, along with building an inn where the center of the city had once stood. While absolutely devastating for the Plataeans, the loss of Plataea was also a great embarrassment for the Athenians, 
who had convinced its citizens to continue their now futile resistance against the Spartan Theban force that had besieged their city for over two years. The other major series of events during that year was a bloody civil war in Corcyra. It was a struggle between the Democrats, who were allies of the Athenians and wished to maintain their alliance with them, and the oligarchs, who obviously preferred the Spartans and their allies. It all started when Corinth released several hundred Corcyrian prisoners it had held on the condition that they would work to convince Corcyra's leaders to break its alliance with Athens and join the Peloponnesian side. These men had managed to bring a pro-Athenian democrat named Pythias to trial on charges of enslaving Corcyra to Athens, basically of being an Athenian puppet. The majority of Corcyrians didn't support nor believe this. After all, their alliance with Athens had thus far served them quite well. Pythias was acquitted, and after the trial, took revenge on five of the oligarchs who had attempted to have him imprisoned by punishing them with heavy fines. Instead, the oligarchs managed to assassinate Pythias and at least 60 other Democrats. Those who managed to escape fled to an Athenian ship still in the harbor and sailed for Athens to inform the assembly there of what had just transpired. Shortly afterward, fighting broke out in Corcyra with the remaining Democrats, common people, and even slaves duking it out against the oligarchs and their mercenaries. The oligarchs were beaten, but not completely defeated. Onto the scene came the Athenian general, Nicostratus, who brought twelve ships from Naupactus, along with eight hundred Messenian hoplites. Despite his superior forces, he showed great restraint and took no major punitive actions against the oligarchic forces, and instead urged the two sides to make peace and requesting that the offensive-defensive alliance between Corcyra and Athens be maintained. By now, though, the oligarchs had made contact with the Peloponnesians, who dispatched Alcides, the same Alcides who had earlier been sent to support the failed rebellion at Mytilene, to aid them against the Democrats. With 40 ships of his own, Alcides met up with 13 other allied vessels, as well as the soon-to-be-famous Spartan warrior, Brasidas, and raced to Corcyra before the Athenians could send more reinforcements. When word of Alcides's fleet reached the Corcyrian Democrats, they set out to challenge them with 60 of their own ships. Acting in haste and extremely disorganized, they ended up being routed by the Peloponnesians. However, Nicostratus and his twelve ships came to the rescue and prevented the Peloponnesians from exploiting their victory, and actually forced several of their ships to withdraw. Brasidas urged Alcides to renew the attack, but the latter refused when scouts reported that a new fleet of sixty Athenian vessels, under the command of Eurymedon, son of Thuclis, was on its way. As with Mytilene, Alcides felt that it was futile to challenge the Athenians at sea when they clearly had the upper hand, and once again he completely withdrew and headed back to the Peloponnese. Without the support of their Peloponnesian allies, the oligarchs were left to the fury of the Democrats, who wasted no time in killing as many of their opponents as possible. 
what happened was an absolute bloodbath that had not been seen between forces of the same polis in any recent or even distant memory. Unlike Nicostratus, who had tried to make peace between the two sides, Eurymedon made no attempt to keep in check the inflamed passions of the Democrats. According to Thucydides, During seven days that Eurymedon stayed with his ships, the Corcyrians were engaged in butchering those of their fellow citizens whom they regarded as their enemies. And although the crime imputed was that of attempting to put down the democracy, some were slain just for private hatred, others by debtors because of the money owed to them. Death thus raged in every shape, and as usually happens at such times, there was no length to which violence did not go. Sons were killed by their fathers, and supplicants dragged from the altar were slain upon it, while some were even walled up in the temple of Dionysus and died there. Such savagery would continue for the remainder of the war, with each side swearing their loyalty not to their common state, or even their people, but to the party or faction to which they belong to. The great modern scholar of the Peloponnesian War, Donald Kagan, writes the following with regard to the factionalism that had encompassed much of the Greek-speaking world in 427 BC. Party membership and loyalty came to be regarded as the highest virtues, overshadowing all others and justifying the abandonment of all the restraints of traditional morality. Fanaticism and the treacherous intention to plot the destruction of an enemy behind his back were regarded as equally admirable. To recoil from either of these was to disrupt the unity of the party out of fear of the enemy. Oaths lost their meaning and became tools of duplicity. In September of 427 BC, the Athenians launched a rather peculiar mission far to the west in the heart of the Mediterranean Sea. For nearly 200 years, the area comprising what is now southern Italy and much of the island of Sicily had been colonized by various Greek city-states, many of which, such as Syracuse, had become much more powerful than the average polis on the Greek mainland. In fact, it was in large part due to the rise of Syracuse that the city of Leontini reached out to Athens for protection. In the past, Leontini, modern Lentini, and Athens had an alliance. However, there was another, perhaps more vital reason for maintaining such an alliance on the edge of the Greek-speaking world, grain. Sicily was full of it, and the cities on the mainland, especially in the Peloponnese, needed it. Syracuse was a former colony of Corinth, but, unlike Corcyra, still maintained friendly relations with its mother city. The more powerful Syracuse became, the more it could aid its allies further to the east. In fact, Athenian spies had learned that the Peloponnesians had planned to build an armada in Sicily to help expand their navy. With more grain and more ships, all at a time when Athens's own fields were under siege and its navy overextended, the Peloponnesian side would have been able to further close the gap between its power and that of the Athenians. 
a fleet of 20 Athenian ships under the command of Lachis and Caroiadis arrived at the city of Regium at the tip of southern Italy, just across the strait from the city of Messina. Controlling the strait would allow the Athenians to cut off grain exports from Sicily to the Peloponnese through the most common route. In addition, the Athenians also planned to take Messina and use it as a base to rally other Sicilian Greeks and even the native Sicils to rise up against Syracuse. The two generals split their ships, with Caroiadis encountering a Syracusan fleet and getting killed in the ensuing battle. Lachis was more successful, and after some resistance, eventually captured Messina. Cementing his control of the Strait of Messina, Lachis's victory inspired some of Syracuse's allies to defect to the Athenian side. The Athenians' victory in and around Messina had weakened Syracuse's hold on the island of Sicily, but they were still a powerful force to be reckoned with. They also knew that their current fleet would not be enough to hold on to their newfound gains in the long run, and so the assembly sent an additional 40 ships to bolster Lachis's force, and also relieve him of his command, replacing him with the Admiral Pythodorus. Four twenty seven BC had proved to have been a pivotal year. Some even felt that it may have been the start of the end of the Great War. Few, if any, realized that a new phase had just begun. We'll get into four twenty six BC and the events that followed in the next installment of the Peloponnesian War podcast. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for listening, and if you're catching this on YouTube, watching. I'd also really like to thank GrandKek69, Yap de Graf, Pasta Frola, Michael Lewis, Daniel Allen, Danny Van Eck, Wynix TV, Robert Morgan, Frank, Tim Lane, Sebastian Hurtado Correa, Michael Trudell, John Scarberry, Andrew Bomer, Monty Grimes, Franz Robbins, Brendan Redman, Faridun Dadachanji, Jimmy Daruwala, Anahita Debu, Sher Cam, Farhad Kama, and all of the channel's patrons on Patreon for helping to support this and all future content. Check out the benefits to being a Patreon member, and if you'd like to join, feel free to click the link in the video description. You can also follow History with Sai on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as continue to listen to special audio programs on the History with Sai podcast. Thanks again, and stay safe.